Welcome to the Pete on Software podcast, where we program with passion. This is the podcast that discusses technology, the business side of software, and the tech people that drive our industry. And now, here's your host, Pete Shearer. Hi, and welcome to episode 33 of the Pete on Software podcast. I'm recording this on Monday, February 2nd, 2015. Today, I have an awesome guest for you, Rob Eisenberg. Borrowing a bio from .NET Rocks, let me say that Rob Eisenberg is a widely recognized UI development expert. He's the creator of Caliber and Micro, Durandal, and a former Angular 2.0 team member. Currently, he's building a new tech startup, Durandal Incorporated, whose first product is the new open source framework, Aurelia. I reached out to Rob right after he left Google. He asked me to wait to interview him because he wanted to have something new to release and talk about. He was always very good about touching base with me to let me know that he hadn't forgotten, and with Aurelia releasing last Monday, now was the time. I'm very excited to present this interview to you. Hi, Rob. How are you doing? Doing great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for doing the interview. Yeah, my pleasure. So I was wondering, and the question I ask a lot of people is, how did you get started in the development field? Is this always something you've wanted to do, or how did this turn out? Uh, it started for me as uh, just fun when I was a kid. My dad brought home a Commodore 64 one day, and I started dinking around on that, and just t- it took over. <laughs> That's the... Nice. Uh, that's how it all began. That's basically my story as well. Uh, so how do you stay current with what's going on? You know, Commodore 64 is a long way from where we are now. I know you've kind of been at the forefront of a lot of different things and certain aspects of technology. So you've been kind of leading more than having to catch up. But do you look anywhere to know and understand what's going on in the field? Uh, it's, it's real difficult. I mean, I do a lot of, of blog readings. I do, you know, listen to podcasts and things like that. I tend to follow various open source projects and read their source code and uh, watch what, you know, various people are doing and involved with. And uh, that's basically, basically how, I, <laughs> how I manage it now. Okay, awesome. So I know you've done a lot of work with front-end JavaScript frameworks. Can you explain just kind of as a level setting and kind of definition what exactly a SPA, a single page application is? Sure. Uh, well, single page apps, you know, technically live in uh, in a single browser page in in the you know a single page in the browser, but provide a richer user experience. So SPA is really about emulating native or desktop or mobile type experiences in JavaScript uh, without the browser having to navigate from page to page to page. So SPA is driven a lot actually by in my opinion by the change in expectations of users in terms of uh, what they want out of the applications that they use and so a spa is a good way to provide a native like experience uh, across a variety of platforms or via uh, the browser well from what i understand with some of the like the client-side routing and everything uh, the spa applications do they act at all like like Flash and iframe apps used to be, by that I mean where making deep linking into the app is difficult or maybe search engine discoverability is difficult, meaning the search engine, if it can't or won't run the JavaScript framework, that your page isn't crawlable or any of those actual concerns or uh, has that been mitigated? So the deep linking isn't so much of a concern these days, and that's primarily why we have most of these frameworks at least have a some sort of client-side router. So that that's much easier than it was to to do something like this with Flash or Silverlight. It was it was difficult because you had to write a JavaScript piece and then you had to somehow integrate into the in, into the other to what was happening internally inside of the Flash or the Silverlight app, and it never quite really worked for for complex UI. Uh, but most of these libraries have a client side router that 
is part of your architecture that makes that work very, very well. So that's not so much an issue. SEO can be an issue. There are solutions to that, a number of different solutions to that. Out of the box with any framework, pretty much, though, it, it doesn't, you're not going to get a, it's not going to be great for SEO. Um, usually, the easiest solution is uh, if you're building some sort of product to build the, to, to think of it in two pieces, you know, think of your marketing uh, slash brochure type website as being built with standard web technologies. And then think of the app part of it being built as a single page app. And in that case, usually the single page app lives behind some sort of login or the user goes through some sort of process of, of getting into the app. And a lot of times you don't want to expose a whole lot of that to crawlers and things like that. Um, so that, that's an easy way to solve the problem. But for people that really, really want to build their public-facing standard website with uh, spa technologies, you can do things. Uh, there are there are um, ways of doing server-side rendering of it, basically. Um, and there are ways of sort of optimizing your uh, your payload and tying into some things that Google does with its crawlers so that you can make that a little bit better. It's not as smooth as it should be. Uh, but this is improving over time. Google is, uh, for example, already has tech, you know, that is making this work a little bit better. And I think that's going to continue to uh, to improve over time. So you're the creator of Durandal, which has a very devoted following. I have some of my friends are, are very, very loyal. Uh, and at one point, you obviously went to go work at Google on Angular 2.0. And the goal, from what I understand from uh, I think an interview you gave on .NET Rocks once, was that a lot of the popular Durandal-like features were going to come into Angular. And your blog post, you said that when you left the Angular team, it was basically your visions had kind of diverged for where you were going to take the product. So I'm not asking you to burn any bridges or slam anyone, but can you elaborate at all as to what kinds of things that Angular is going to be doing or not be doing that made you want to part ways? And you could talk about that at like whatever level you feel comfortable about. Sure. Um, you know, when people have asked me this recently, I I tend to my answer tends to basically be that uh, very broad, which is that. It looked from my perspective that Angular was becoming a framework that was a lot more restrictive in its general nature than I had envisioned it to be. And, that's a, and I mean that in a very broad sense. And that's not necessarily bad. For a lot of people, the uh, restrictions might give them a development experience that they want or work for their particular application scenarios. But when I looked at how that was playing out in certain implementations and design choices uh, over the entire product, I became concerned about um, the types of apps that I have worked on in the past, whether it would be possible to build some of them or whether it would just be very, very difficult. I looked out at things I wanted to build in the future and was concerned. And I, and I looked out at uh, the existing Durandal community, which I had hoped to bring over to Angular 2.0 and the types of things that they were building, the reasons that they had picked Durandal uh, you know, over other frameworks and the kinds of capabilities that they needed. And I was concerned that it might not really be possible and certainly not very easy to migrate them over to Angular 2 in the future. And like I said, there was there's a lot of details as to why that is. I'd rather not get into that. And, and you know, some of that might change or all of it might change before they release. Mm -hmm. But broadly speaking, things looked to be more restrictive uh, in terms of the framework than I was comfortable with. And I had concerns about my community and my own past and experience and future uh, plans in terms of uh, you know, being able to really use it. No, that's great. I appreciate that. So, so after leaving your new product that you just released last week was called Aurelia. Can you tell us what that is and how is it different from Durandal and Angular and, and Ember and these others? And 
why a new product instead of like a Durandal V-Next? So I really do think of it as a, uh, a Durandal V-Next. Um, it is very much, it's sort of like a child of Durandal, if you will. Um, it has all the same kinds of concepts. You, you take the same general development approach. The way you think about solving problems is very similar. Anyone coming from Durandal over to Aurelia will basically have a very smooth transition and there won't be a whole lot to learn. It's a very natural progression for them. So I do think of it that way, although I felt that there was enough different about it that it uh, a new name was warranted. Now, how does it differ from other things that are out there? And there's there's a number of ways. You know, From the beginning, it's written in ECMAScript 6. And we want to try and encourage people to learn and use ECMAScript 6. Uh, so it's, it's basically built with the next generation version of JavaScript. And we target modern browsers. So we make some uh, assumptions about APIs that modern browsers have. And by doing this, we're able to have a very a much simpler code base, more uh, efficient code base, and just do a lot of neat things. And what we do is we provide polyfills for features that are, you know, off in the future or not entirely implemented by every browser. Uh, and we also, you know, out of the box, we get you started with 6 to 5, which is a uh, ES6 transpiler. So since ES6 isn't implemented, or at least all its features aren't implemented in all the browsers, we set you up with that so that you can write your code in ES6 and transpile to ES5. Uh, so from the beginning, it's basically, we start out with this assumption that we're basically building this for the future. We want to use the next generation version of JavaScript and present and future browser capabilities as a foundation for building the framework. So we're not, we're not targeting IE6 here. We're more like tar targeting future versions of IE in a sense, but polyfilling for today. The idea here being is that the framework is going to be relevant for a long time because we're basically trying to stay several years ahead of the specifications in many senses. So that's kind of our starting point. That's something that makes it pretty unique. Another thing that makes it really unique is it's highly modular. So it is not just one JavaScript file or one module that you download. It's actually over 20 separate modules. Each one of them is independently versioned. Each one of them is independently released. The technology is such today that it's not a pain to create a JavaScript or consume a JavaScript library like this. Um, modern package managers mean that you know, if it's split into multiple uh, multiple libraries like that, as long as you declare your dependencies appropriately, you can just still have a one-line install experience through Bower or JSPM or something like that. So this allows us to basically highly modularize our library. Again, we're using ES6, so these are ECMAScript 6 modules, but each uh, module lives in its own repository and is independently uh, semvered and released. And you can install the whole framework with one line, or you can pull out certain libraries that you want to use for different reasons independent of the framework. You know, so an example of that is we leverage dependency injection as a core part of the framework. But the dependency injection library is standalone, and it, it runs on the server and it runs on the client. So if you're doing Node.js development, you can just install the dependency injection library and use it for your Node.js development. Um, or you could use it in a web app that's just a standard web app, a, a non-SPA web app, if you if you wanted that. Uh, but we've got a number of libraries like that, uh, event aggregation, task queuing, dependency injection, our HTTP stack. All these things are, um, uh, you know individual libraries, uh, individually versioned and individually released. If you say, I want to use Aurelia Framework, you basically get them all pre-configured and set up and you just start writing a, a SPA. 
but many of them you can use independently. Some of them on the server side, some on the client and server both, and different combinations. So I think this is a different approach too. Highly modular, intended to be used uh, in pieces. And in fact, even intended to be used as a set of building blocks for creating custom frameworks. Uh, An example of this is our data binding engine is completely decoupled from the templating engine. And even the the data binding syntax is completely decoupled from both templating and the binding engine. So if you want to create a custom framework, you have some special needs or you need something really small or or whatever, whatever, whatever the case is, but you don't want to reinvent data binding, you can basically bring our data binding engine in and then maybe write your own little custom templating engine just using some basic query selectors and a simple parser or whatnot. And actually, you don't, you don't need to write the parser because we have the parser already. But you can you know, basically use pieces of Aurelia to construct even custom frameworks. So again, the idea is if for some reason Aurelia as a whole doesn't make sense to you, you don't have to start from scratch. You know, you can take the pieces that do make sense and then bring them together into a custom framework more easily than with, I think, any other library. So the modularity is an extremely important part and something that's a bit new. There's a lot of little things, but another big thing, I think, is actually is actually our, our data binding engine. And it's an adaptive data binding engine, which is quite different from anything else um, uh, out there right now. And it means that... When you data bind some part of your HTML to a view model or a model, we actually look at your binding expression and we pick the uh, most efficient strategy for observing the model based off of the runtime capabilities of the browser and the way that you've defined your object. Uh, So for example, if it's a simple property and you happen to be running in a browser with the ES7 object observe capability, then we'll use that to observe it. So then we're using native observation capabilities. But if not, then we will generate a getter and setter that puts our infrastructure for observation under the covers. And that effectively polyfills object observe. And we do it in such a way that has the same runtime characteristics as object observe. So it uses uh, the micro task queue for batching of updates, and it's extremely efficient the way it does that. If you don't have a simple property or you don't have object observe and that combination of things doesn't work out, then we'll fall back to doing dirty checking. So in that sense, we can observe everything anything. Uh, But we start with much more efficient techniques up front, and then we go through kind of a list of strategies until ultimately we fall back to dirty checking in the end if we can't do it any other way. And the really neat thing about this, and I just actually got this merged into our uh, source code this morning, is that you can plug in custom strategies into the binding uh, engine. So we have... um, Someone that's actually already plugged in Breeze.js, which is a, uh, a data library out there. And the interesting thing about Breeze.js is when they, they have adapters, and when they wrote it to work for a knockout, they used knockout observables uh, and the way that they generated their models. And when they got it to work with Angular, they used plain properties, but Angular had to do dirty checking. But the interesting thing about Breeze is it's got its own uh, property system and its own Uh, property change notifications. So when they adapted it to Aurelia, they wrote a little adapter that drops right into our data binding system, which allows us to understand how the Breeze objects publish changes. So what that means is that they get the best of both worlds. They get the observable updates with no dirty checking in Aurelia, but they also get the 
the simple uh, vanilla JS property syntax. And so we have this adaptable data binding engine that's pluggable that you can write little adapters to drop in to teach it how to understand different types of model libraries. Uh, so in that sense, the goal being that, yes, we have this dirty check fallback, but it's going to be such a small number of things that actually need to be dirty checked because our existing strategies work very well for most of the way you build objects. And anything that doesn't fall in that, you can usually plug an adapter in to kind of teach the framework about how you're building your models. And uh, so basically it gives us a very efficient way to uh, observe anything, uh, to pick the right way to do observe anything. Anything we can observe, we do with dirty checking and that so few things that it almost doesn't matter in terms of performance. Uh, so we can actually run that on a more or less on a timer, and it doesn't matter because there's only a few things we have to check. So it's 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 minuscule, and so then we don't have any of that digest and scope stuff, or you know that other frameworks like Angular have. Um, so you get to use plain plain JS models, and we do a lot, and you can teach us new things. And my you know one of my philosophies about building frameworks in general is that you should be able to teach the framework about the way that you want to write code. And this is a key aspect of Aurelia as well. I just gave you one example in bindings, but you know Aurelia uses conventions to try and make your life uh, easier. So that's really important. But anytime there's a convention in Aurelia, you can basically go in there and say, well, that's not quite how we want to do things in, in our project. So you can teach it your own conventions. So a lot of the framework is designed to be pluggable and teachable, if you will, so that you can make it work for the you know unique development culture or the unique requirements of your application. So those are that's a few things that I think make it a little bit different than than what's out there. Um, I think when you put them all together into one package, um, I think it's you know for me at least it's very compelling, and I th it's been neat to see people get excited uh, when they've started to play with play around with it. Yeah, that's awesome. I I know going through the video. The little tutorial video you have on the Aurelia.io site, there's so much of it that made it easier to understand. You know, these other, some of the other frameworks have a pretty steep learning curve. This definitely seems a lot simpler, at least to, to get from the modularization, as you said, there's seems to be a lot you can add in, but you don't need to jump into the deep end, I guess, to get started. There's a lot you can do uh, as you're moving. Uh, where'd the name come from? Like where, so why is uh, the name, is it just a name you liked or does it have some meaning that represents what you're trying to do? Uh, yeah, it's kind of complicated, hard to explain, and not even, I don't know if it's entirely explainable. Let's just say it's a name that I liked. <laughs> okay. Yeah, good enough. So how many people are working on it? Is this just you, or do you have a team? Or I know you mentioned a little bit, sounds like you're taking some contributions uh, for certain things. So is that is just you in a community, or are there some other people working on it dedicated? Yeah, we've got, so I've been doing open source for a little while, and I decided that it was time to really do this right. So Basically, we s set up a, a new company to own Aurelia, to produce Aurelia, uh, and that's Durandal Inc. So the company name is, is derived from the previous framework name. Mm -hmm. And then we looked out at the community, people that had contributed to Durandal and uh, people that I had met recently that were very interested in what I was up to and had experience in this area. And basically, we, uh, we brought on a core team. So we have a company, new company backing it, which we're, I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But we also have a, uh, a core team of about 10 developers from the community uh, that are uh, contributing significant time every week to, uh, 
to working on Aurelia. And that's everything from, you know, development, bug fixes, features, testing, uh, performance work, all sorts of things. And the way it happened was I basically seeded the project with a, with a whole bunch of code, got it to a point where it was uh, functioning and had enough features to do stuff with. And then I reached out to uh, this group of people that I had been identifying for several months and brought them, you know, basically said, hey, it's time to, uh, you know, to, to take a look at this. And here's, here's the kind of commitment that we're looking for and, and so on and so forth. And from that group, we, you know, had a smaller group, which is these 10 or so people that are uh, basic, you know, official core team members from the community. So yeah, about 10 people or so working on it right now, in addition to just any and that's an official official capacity, but of course, it, we just launched a week ago with the you know with the public announcement. But we've had tons of uh, community contribution in terms of pull requests and and all sorts of things. So it's been really interesting to see that. Now, in terms of the company, you know, the company is backing this project, and it's it's really the sole goal of this company to be invested into Aurelia and to basically survive from it. And so uh, I don't have a lot of details to give out now, but Durandal Inc. is basically planning to build a series of products for developers. Uh, and every one of those products will be built with or on or for or somehow around Aurelia. And some of them will be open source and some of them will be free. Some of them will follow uh, various different commercial type models. Uh, but the idea is to build an entire ecosystem around it. And it's important from my perspective that the company lives and dies based off of the success of the framework itself. And we want to be personally invested in it by having our own products built with Aurelia. Uh, and so that's actually development that's starting right now. And, and along those lines, of course, we're we're doing a lot of the typical tech startup type things. So we're looking for additional funding, VC funding, and all kinds of different things like that. And we've got we got a lot of different people in the mix uh, advising us in terms of legal counsel and business counsel and all this sort of thing. So it's it's a real deal uh, in terms of it's not just some dude coding mm-hmm. late at night um it's and we'll be bringing on full-time employees we're in the process of basically assembling the uh the core the team for the company itself uh, and that means business you know business people developers ux people uh, all that kind of stuff so that's in the process of happening right now and uh i'm really excited about some of the some of the stuff that i can't really tell you about but that hopefully i'll have to show in not too long but yeah so that's kind of the story the story there with what's not a midnight coding project (laughs) all right that's that's awesome so tell me a little bit, what does a typical Aurelia development look like? So like, is it compatible with all server-side frameworks? Can you use it with .NET, Node, PHP, Ruby on Rails? You know, I saw in your video you were using Gulp, and that was, I was involved in running some things there. Is that required? Is that, uh, you know, is that something else people have to learn or take a dependency on if they're not already? There's stuff like that. Yeah, so there's no server-side requirements. It's The library itself is just pure JavaScript, and we have people that have used it with Node, people that are using it with uh, Python backends, people using it with .NET backends already, just in the last week or so. So there's no there's no real uh, requirements on the backend uh, at all. Now, our starter kit ships with a gulp build file, and that's just so that we can basically get you up and running with a whole bunch of stuff effortlessly. Um, that means transpiling your your ES6 code, because we want you to write ES6 as well. So we set you up with the transpiler. We set you up with uh, JS hint. 
we set you up with your karma and your protractor, you know, unit and uh, end-to-end testing is all configured. And we set you up with uh, just a number of other things in that gulp build file so that you basically have pretty much everything you need to build an app pre-configured for you. So all you have to do is basically start pulling out our sample code and putting yours in and putting pulling out our sample tests and putting your tests in. Uh, so that's kind of the reason for the gulp being there. It's not required at all. We have people that are actually uh, using Visual Studio for development that are instead of using ES6, they're using TypeScript and they're using the Visual Studio tooling and deploying, you know, with an ASP.NET backend and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so you can do whatever you want. What kind of, uh, you know, you mentioned you're doing a lot of things, it sounds like, to help mitigate some browser concerns, but what are the minimum? I'm sure there's some point, there's a cutoff point. What are the minimum browser requirements in order to be able to use this? So minimum browser requirements officially are um, are today's latest versions. Uh, and that basically, usually what this means is people want to know like what version of Internet Explorer uh, uh-huh. it supports. And so that's basically, officially, it's Internet Explorer 11 and beyond. Now, we do have people that have tried it uh, by adding a couple additional polyfills or doing a few different things at startup and have confirmed that everything is working 100% for both IE10 and IE9. So we haven't personally verified that yet, and that's something we're going to be looking into. And if it's uh, something that we can make happen to support all the way back to IE9 uh, without really kind of jeopardizing the architecture of the framework or doing any kind of craziness there, then then we'll definitely support that. So officially at the moment, IE11 and above, but maybe we might get even support for IE9, which I think... I think a lot of people would actually be very excited about that if we could do that. So it looks promising, but we yeah. can't confirm that. Yeah, at least in the enterprise space, that's big because there's sometimes you can't you, know, you can't control what the people have. Yes. So, but it, also in that idea, you know, you mentioned you're going to be. It sounds like you're going to be dog fooding it a little bit, and you're going to be building products with it. What's the story for uh, how ready or how comfortable are you saying? You know, if I wanted to start building a project with it at work. Is it, you think, is it stable enough that I could start working with it now or is it going to be volatile enough over the last, over the next, I'm sorry, like three months or six months that if I built something now, I'd have to rewrite it if I wanted to be able to support a version that came out in six months, something like that? Well, I don't foresee any major rewrites. So what we're calling our stage right now is basically an early preview. So it's it's more than an alpha, but not quite a beta. And the reason that we're not in beta yet is that we've got a number of features that are missing, things like uh, some stuff missing from the data binding system. We don't have built-in animations. Of course, you can use CSS animation, but there's a few things we want to do around animation. We haven't done that yet. We don't have uh, as much test coverage as we like. Some aspects of the framework have very, very good test coverage. Some aspects have not so good test coverage. So we'd like to get that in shape. And then we've got a whole lot of performance optimization to do. Again, some parts of the framework are very, very fast. Some parts are not that great. And fortunately, for those parts, we know pretty much exactly what we need to do. It's just a matter of getting around to doing that. There's a, you know, there's a lot of a list of lots of little things to bring a framework like this to a V1. Uh, release. And uh, so we're moving right now towards beta, which, like I said, will involve performance enhancements, missing features, and additional tests. And then I I hope that we'll get there in maybe three months, four months, something like that. And at that point, then we want to just sit and stabilize and work out bugs for a few months before we actually hit the final release. Those are kind of tentative, like non-committal 
guesstimates on timeframes because a lot of things can happen and there are external dependencies involved as well. Um, but the hope is that right now, not there won't even as of now, hopefully there won't be a lot of big uh, breaking API type changes. But it is an earlier adapter phase, so there are breaking changes, so you'd have to kind of stay on top of those things. And like I said, each library is released independently and SEMVERD. So if, if you're SEMVERD compatible, then you don't have to worry. But when you uh, update a library, if it goes up to a non-compatible SEMVER version, then you know that there was some breaking changes. And we, of course, we publish release notes with every release of every library. And that details, you know, what are fixes, what are features, what are breaking changes. So all that information is available even back, I don't know, from maybe like a month ago. Because we've actually, uh, even though I didn't announce anything, the whole thing has been up on GitHub for a little while. Mm-hmm. And has been releasing for a little while. So, you know, some of the repos have 20 or 30 releases already, you know, on the library. So, and those release notes are all in there. So you do have to kind of, if you're going to get serious and build an app with it right now, uh, you'll have to pay a little bit more attention to that than what you might a few months down the road. You know, we're we're not saying, we're telling people basically that you should not go to production with this tomorrow. Your mileage may vary. You may be able to get it to uh, work good enough for your scenarios. But again, we want to do a lot more performance work. Um, Our bundling, our application bundling solution is not finished yet. If you really know what you're doing, you can basically make that work yourself. But uh, most people haven't done that for spas. Mm -hmm. So uh, they end up deploying something that makes 170 requests to the server just to load the first few. And that's awful you know when we're done it won't do that Uh, but we have to we want to make it easy for you to bundle up your apps and we're we haven't you know we haven't released that solution just yet so don't don't try to go to production at this point what we would really like for people to do is to watch the video play with the get started guide try it out maybe do a fun side project with it Um, maybe try porting uh, some code from existing libraries just to see how it works. Give us lots of feedback. Um, if you've got a, a little bit longer of a time frame, like you know you're not going to be going into production with your app for another six months, then and you're willing to deal with some of the early adopter type uh, challenges with potential breakage and whatnot, then yeah, you can go ahead and start developing with it now. And there are people doing that, and there's and I'm doing that, and <laughs> uh, but. Uh, but yeah, so we're right between alpha and beta, basically. No, that's good. And it sounds like for everything you're doing there, it's extremely responsible. You have lots of notes, doing the semantic versioning, everything you, everything you can do to try to, to help people fall into the pit of success. Uh, so that sounds good. Um, what are some ways that if I'm writing server-side APIs and I'm writing something with the expectation that people with these kind of frameworks, you know, Aurelia, Angular, any of these things included, what are some of the ways you can write them so that they work best with them? So you know, is it just the matter of, of being as restful as possible, returning JSON? You know, the objects need to look a certain way. Do they need to be chattier or chunkier? Or, you know, what are some of the things that we can do to just be successful there? Oh, wow. That's a question that's really hard to answer because it, it depends on so many different so many different things. You know, without giving too many details, like my, my day job is really interesting because we have a, a extremely hypermedia-driven API. It's, it's actually a .NET backend. I don't do any work on the backend, and I don't know anything about the implementation, but I built the client uh, with Aurelia that um, basically can dynamically constructs an entire UI based off of uh, JSON schema data and, um, and RELs and things like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can do that, but you have people that do uh, CRUD, 
uh, apps where they build, bring down very large complex object graphs and, that, and then sometimes send chain sets back. There's a lot of different patterns for... I don't know that anyone is more or less successful, gener- generally speaking. Mm-hmm. There's none that lend themselves to the kind of, of work you do in Aurelia or anything like the, the client-side framework might prefer one over the other. I mean, it, JSON is, it would be the preferred uh, media type, basically. Mm-hmm. But how that JSON is structured or what that actually looks like, Aurelia doesn't, doesn't care anything about. And like I said, I've, I've worked on a number of apps that have done it, you know, done things quite, in quite different ways. Uh, you can pick the wrong solution for your app. But I don't know that there's a wrong, you know, a wrong approach, generally speaking. Yeah, you it goes can back certainly to it depends. Pick, yeah, you can certainly pick the wrong technique for your specific application, um, but not. But it's hard to speak about that generally. Okay, that's fine. How should people approach a, this glut of front-end JavaScript frameworks? So there's there's so many, and they're they're opinionated. It seems they're very opinionated. Like uh, uh, learning one doesn't necessarily help so much with learning the other ones. Uh, from what I saw, like I mentioned a little bit earlier of Aurelia from the video. I like how shallow the learning curve seems to be, uh, what you've seen to what you've been doing to kind of help that problem. But for the developers who are out in the market, do you have a do you have kind of an opinion on what should they do? Is it learn one every so often? Is it learn some of the big ones, learn nothing, you know, until you have to? You know, do you have any kind of help whatsoever uh, for dealing with this outside of let's just learn Aurelia and be done with it? Oh that was gonna be my easy answer. <laughs> No, um, actually, you know, the the base advice actually is to um, step back from frameworks for a little bit and spend time looking at ECMAScript 6 um, because this is a fundamental transformation in the JavaScript programming language. So I and this is going to affect you uh, regardless of what libraries, frameworks, tools you use. Uh, so I would say start uh, by looking at ES6. Learn how the modules work because this is going to change how modularized code works in JavaScript. Uh, get familiar with the class syntax. You know, look at how rest and spread and all these different things work. Get familiar with promises. Understand symbols and iterators. I mean, there's a lot. You know, ES6 is a huge set of improvements to JavaScript. It's going to be rolling out probably over the next couple of years into the browsers, but you know, polyfills and transpilers let you use pretty much all of it today. So I would start, I would, my advice would be to start by getting very, very familiar with that and start seeing if you can write uh, whatever kind of JavaScript you're writing as part of your day job. See if you can start writing in ES6 using something like 6 to 5 to transpile it. And that's going to be a great first step. That actually works to my advantage, you know, from the perspective of Aurelia, because we did try and build a framework that was much vanilla ES6 as possible. But I, I think that it's really good just as a JavaScript developer to, if you haven't looked into that, start doing it now, because this is a good thing long term. And JavaScript's going to be evolving much more quickly now. Uh, they're moving to an annual an annual cadence of releasing, you know, or at least nailing down additional features. So getting kind of into the groove of staying up with the transformation of JavaScript is an important part uh, of being in this space in general. So I would start with that. Another thing I would do is I would um, I would spend some time learning about new DOM APIs. So again, on the other side of this this idea of general, not just not just generally learning about new JavaScript stuff, but learning about what's happening in the DOM, what's changing in the DOM itself. So this means things like learning about uh, fundamental transformations 
in kind of how DOM processing goes. So, so do some research on micro task queues, learn about DOM mutation observers, get up to speed on uh, what's happening with web components, even though it's uh, mostly a disaster in my opinion, but uh, that's probably an entire show unto itself. But, um, uh, but learn about what's happening with some of these new specs for, for DOM APIs and, um, and then take that as a good foundation. And, and once you have kind of got familiar with all that, then you have a kind of a new perspective to approach any of these frameworks. And and what I do is, I mean, I do this a lot more than most people because I, I usually study the source code of pretty much every framework that comes out that I know about. But um, you don't need to do that. And what I would say is you got to do your day job. So learn what you need to learn for your day job. But just, um, you know, stay on top of what is happening. So it might mean that something like Aurelia comes along, you know, maybe you can't use it right away, but know what it is. Know what makes it unique. Uh, Watch a short video on it. Browse or read through the docs. You don't have to become a guru on it. But just know so that the next time that you're in a position of making decisions or providing feedback to someone who is making decisions, you have uh, an informed opinion. So a lot of people complain about there's there's so much there's so much there's so much. Well, you don't have you don't have to be a guru, uh, you know, on every framework and library, but just you know sometimes 15 minutes, 10 or 15 minutes of actually browsing the website gives you enough information you can store away uh, to have later when you need it uh, to make a decision. And then if you choose to go down a particular path, then you can dig in uh, at that point in time. So that's what I would do. I would start with general learning because there's a lot of new stuff happening with ES6 and DOM capabilities. And then I would, from there, just make sure to be familiar with or acquainted in some way with the different libraries that kind of pop up here and there. Not enough to, don't feel like you need to, you know, dig in so deep that you can put it on a resume per se, uh, or that don't freak out about people wanting experience uh, (laughs) in it on a resume. But uh, just be familiar with what's happening. And if you find something interesting that's exciting, then, you know, feel free to explore it more. Cool. That's a, that's a good answer. So wrapping up, is there anything that you'd like to promote or point people to? Uh, how can people find you, reach you, support you, support what you're doing, that kind of thing? Uh, well, there's Aurelia.io, which uh, is the uh, website for the new project. And uh, so hopefully people will check that out, watch the video. Uh, we've got a getting started guide, and we've got some preliminary documentation. A lot of that will be growing uh, and be enhanced over the coming months. Keep an eye on my personal blog or on the Durandal blog, and uh, we'll be making announcements about the different things that we're planning for developers, and hopefully that'll be interesting and exciting. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Okay, excellent. Again, thank you so much for being on the show. I really, really appreciate it, and uh, I'll talk to you later. All right, you're welcome. Bye-bye. Big thanks again to Rob Eisenberg for taking time out of his busy schedule to do this interview. He really had a wealth of knowledge, and being able to grab him so close to the Aurelia release is pretty amazing for me. My pick of the week this week is a related blog post called Aurelia vs. AngularJS Round 1 over at ilikekillnerds.com. I don't get the blog name at all, but the post is pretty good. In the post, Dwayne Charrington takes a look at Aurelia and Angular and even a little Durandal and gives his opinions about how things look a day after Aurelia's release. I'll include the URL to the post in the show notes so you can check it out. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If you have the time or the inclination, I'd love a rating or a view in iTunes or wherever you found me. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can find me at Pete on Software on Twitter or on my blog, PeteOnSoftware.com. 
Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.